God, our Father, we thank you that you are here with us, present to us this morning by the power of your Spirit. Would you just open up our eyes, open up our hearts uh, to see this beautiful vision of a reconciled, multi-ethnic family. Would you help us to see it, to long for it, to work for it, to just be open even to the ways, as we see with Peter, that we are often resistant or confused um, in this work. And would you move us as a church, continue to move us in the direction of being a reconciled people who bring this gift not only to our congregation, but to our neighbors and to the world, for the life of the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had an experience where you came into contact with a new reality, say like a new cultural reality, and you knew that you'd never be the same after this, right? Like you kind of know going forward, my life is going to mar- be marked by, you know, kind of before this and after this. This is, for me, kind of what it was like to uh, be married, to, to come into marriage the first year. Uh, I, uh, and really, um, I think you learn a lot about the culture of a family uh, around the holidays, particularly Christmas. So my wife and I were married in June of 2004, and we had been friends for uh, like six years before we got married. But we hadn't really gotten like gone there, like all the way there with our families in terms of really understanding each other's family cultures. And so uh, Christmas was like this time for, for me to experience for the first time her family culture at like a really deep level. Um, so I come from a really small family. There was four of us. I have a sister. Um, our family is, uh, you know, kind of comes from very dysfunctional families, alcoholism, lots of brokenness there. Uh, and, and we're pretty like low key. So we don't like really celebrate holidays, don't make a big deal about, you know, birthdays and things like that. So that's kind of like the script that I had coming into marriage. And then I, I found out that I married into the Griswold family. So if you guys are familiar with uh, that movie, I'll just throw a picture up. Literally my, step, my, my stepfather, my father-in-law uh, is like a much smarter and more together Clark Griswold, but he's all about like creating moments and like family tradition. So for them, Christmas is not a day. It is like an event, a multi-day Many splendored event. Like it is, it is like the Final Four weekend. Like Christmas is, it's like the Super Bowl, right? So there are lots of moving parts. My family, it's like if you show up five minutes late, they may have already eaten dinner without you. Like this is kind of how my family rolls. Emily's family, it's like they wait for you, right? And you get the stank eye if you're late. Like, and, and, and there's all kinds of like events. It starts at Bob Evans and then it goes to the movie theater and then people go back to the house and they get in their pajamas. And it's like oh, this whole thing. Everybody waits for each other to like open gifts. Like my family is like a free for all. You get to open gifts early, which is like anathema to Emily's family. Um, we get to open gifts the night before. And she's like, nah, that, that's not happening here. Um, so there, there's a lot of like um, what so I, I, I did some intercultural studies work uh, in my master's. And it's what um, anthropologists call culture shock. So there's like phases of culture shock that I think you could apply to marriage. Like the honeymoon, right? Everything's great. If you ever lived in another country or lived in another culture, it's like, oh, this is amazing. All of our differences just work together and they're beautiful. And then, then comes the culture shock, right? That disorientation of like, oh my gosh, like that, I, what used to be really fun actually is super annoying and frustrating now. And so you move into that frustration phase and eventually you come out and you negotiate and you adapt, and, and you actually learn that in a healthy marriage or family system, you've got to let go of certain things that maybe are a part of your culture, 
But then you get to embrace and, and experience all kinds of other beautiful things about their culture. So the togetherness, the intimacy. Uh, I even learned, like, I kind of, I like spaghetti at Christmas. Like, I never thought I liked spaghetti, but, like, that's a big thing. Like, big, meaty spaghetti was the thing we do on Christmas. There's a Christmas wreath involved in this, which is, like, this little, you know, like, breakfast treat. Remember the first year, uh, her dad, like, had spent all this time, you know, making this Christmas wreath and, and glazing it. And then we walk in, and she's like, no, you've got to try my dad's Christmas wreath. And I was like, what if I don't want your dad's Christmas wreath, okay? Like, I don't. And that was just kind of like my posture the first couple years in her family. Now I'm like, Christmas wreath. You know, I'm like all in. You know, like we're, whatever we are, 17, 18 years in, uh, I'm all in with the Christmas wreath. And so that, like, that, that coming together of cultures, like I realize it has changed me. And I will forever be changed. And I'm continuing to be changed because of the influence of her family and vice versa, uh, and, and that's kind of what comes to what happens when, when you come into contact with a new cultural reality. Um, I, I want to use that as a very light, kind of fun example of a much more serious thing that's happening here in Peter's experience in the Book of Acts. Um, Peter's experience here is really kind of unprecedented in the Bible. This is a really important moment in the life of the church here in Acts chapters ten and eleven. And it's the coming together, the reconciliation of two radically different cultures, Jew and Gentile. And I want us to come to this text with fresh eyes because oftentimes we read texts like this, and maybe you grew up hearing this story in church, but we read it through cultural lenses. We read it through racialized lenses. We read it through our own filters, and we often miss things. So I want us to come back to this, and I wanna help just go through the text for a few minutes, and I wanna help you to see it through the eyes of a first century Jew and Gentile, and I want you to understand what it would have meant how radical this would have been then. Then I wanna talk about uh, the implications and the invitations that God might have for us in this moment as we also seek to be about this work of reconciliation. And so let me just move through this in like scenes. So think of this uh, like, like a narrative or a film. And let me move through this and just retell this story quickly in scenes because you just got a snippet of it there a moment ago. So scene one, this man named Cornelius who uh, Luke says is basically, he's pointing out these cultural things. He's in Caesarea. This is a Roman city, a Roman garrison. He's a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. The whole point there is he's not a Jew, right? So Jews and Gentiles in the Bible, you're either Jew or you're Gentile. So most of us here, unless you're Jewish, you would be a Gentile in this story. You would be Cornelius, okay? And so he's not, uh, he's not a Jew, he's a Gentile. And it says in verse two, this is really interesting. He was a devout man, and he feared God along with his whole household. And he did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people, and he always prayed to God. Here you have a very moral, I, I think of this guy like the traditional Midwestern person, right? You grow up in church, you're very moral. The God-fearers were this group of non-Jews who had limited access to the temple, um, but they really desired to follow Yahweh, and, and they really desired in some ways to even become Jewish, but they were always on the outside, right? So here you have a very moral guy who is interested in following God, and, and, and the angel comes to him and gives him a vision and says, your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial before God. Like God is paying attention to this man. Send men to Joppa, call for Simon, who's also named Peter, He's lodging with Simon and Tanner, whose house is by the sea. He's going to preach to you a message. And I, I think we just need to not miss the fact that you can be a moral, religious person and not be a Christian. You, you can be doing really good things. I mean, here you have a guy who's kind of an activist, right? He's involved in his community. You have a guy who's very religious. He's very devout. 
maybe even more so than some of us, and yet he still needed to hear the good news of Jesus. He still needed God to send him the message about Jesus, right? So, so he gets this vision. At the same time, scene two, Peter gets a vision, right? Peter's hungry. He goes up on the roof to pray, and he, and he falls into this trance, and he has a vision. He sees heaven open, and essentially a large picnic blanket, think of it like a picnic blanket, a large sheet falls down, and it's got all of these animals and reptiles and birds on it, and a voice says to Peter, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, just cultural context, if you want to read more about this, you can go back to Leviticus 11 and learn about the food laws, right? So there were all these animals. There was lists of animals in the Old Testament. As God's bringing them up out of Egypt, out of slavery, he's delivering them. He's teaching them what, it's, what it means to be uh, his people. And one of the primary lessons that God's trying to teach them in the book of Leviticus and through the law is about his holiness, right? He's trying to, remember, they come out of a situation where like good and evil had been gaslighted for like generations by Pharaoh. Like they didn't understand good and evil. And so God is teaching them about good and evil. He's teaching them about his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness. And he's teaching them to distinguish between things that are clean and things that are unclean, right? So all the food laws, all the things about animals in Leviticus are all designed to teach them about their sinfulness and about their need for the power and the presence of God. So animals, over time, eventually come to represent people. And so unclean animals then get tied up and become unclean people, right? And so the point was, God's saying, don't join yourself to, uh, to, to, don't, don't, like, the idea of animals is like, you're not just eating it. We think of animals in kind of consumptive terms. But for them, like, eating an animal was joining yourself to, like, a people. And so God's saying, don't join yourself to pagan practices. And, and they're kind of, this is like training wheels, teaching them about what it meant to honor and acknowledge the holiness of God. But over time, that kind of morphs into a certain sort of cultural superiority, which we'll talk about more here in just a second. And so you can imagine 1,400 years of being taught, like, this is bad. Don't eat this food. Don't eat these animals, right? All these distinctions between, you know, four-footed creatures, some that split the, you know, eat cud and their hooves are split and some that are not. It's all designed to teach them. And so all of a sudden God says, hey, I'm doing a different thing. I'm doing something new, and I want you to eat these animals. And, and you got to imagine Peter's like PTSD from his whole thing with the rooster crowing three times. He's like, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not falling for this again, right? Like, I'm going to be faithful this time. And, and yet he ends up finding himself again, typical Peter, on the wrong side of God's redemptive activity, right? And so God says to him, what I've made clean, or what I've, what I've made clean, don't call impure, don't call common, don't call unclean. And that's kind of the refrain that you see throughout this story. At just that moment, scene three, Peter hears, or there's a knock on the door. And these men come from Cornelius and they say, hey, God has sent us here. You're supposed to come and you're supposed to tell us this message of salvation. So Peter takes six disciples, which I have to think is at least in part to kind of vouch for him that he's, he's going to a Gentile's house, which a good Jew would not do, Peter says down a little bit further um, I want you guys to make sure that what I'm doing is kosher. That's just me using my sanctified imagination. He takes six guys to kind of witness uh, to his behavior. And then he says something like super rude. So like imagine showing up to somebody's house uh, who's of another culture. In verse 28, Peter says, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure. Or like, can you imagine, like, okay, like you're, you're a, a white person, you show up at a black person's house and you say that. 
you're a black person, you show up at a Puerto Rican's house, and you're just like, hey, man, not supposed to be around you, you're impure, but God has told me, I mean, like, very awkward. Like, this is, this is the reality of doing reconciliations. There's going to be offensive things that we say, but, like, I appreciate his honesty and, like, naming, like, this is, this is my imprint. This is how I, I was raised to think, but God is showing me something completely different here. There's 1,400 years of laws and taboos that were central to Peter's identity, right? Like central to the identity of a Jew was saying, I'm not a Gentile. And, and that wasn't just like ethnic superiority. It was also a matter of, matter of ethnic survival. Remember, these are, these are diaspora Jews. These are people who've been oppressed for generations. So to lose your sense of cultural identity was to put yourself at risk like of violence and, and death. And so Peter here is, is, is doing what a normal Jew would have done. But notice there's a conversion that takes place. Verse 34, Peter begins to speak. Now I truly understand. So notice Peter's journey, right? In verse 16, Peter's resisting. In verse 17, Peter is perplexed. He's confused. Now in verse 34, Peter is converted. John Stott, the great Anglican commentator on this passage, he says, there's two conversions in the story, the conversion of Cornelius, which we often see, but there's also the conversion of Peter. Now, I truly understand, like this is hitting me different, that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The background of that comment, it it literally means God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't discriminate on the basis of race or ethnicity or class. The background to that comment is almost word for word, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, when God says about himself, I don't show favoritism. And it's in the context of talking about specifically race and ethnicity and class distinctions. God says, I don't show favoritism. And so Peter says, I'm now learning this for myself. So Peter preaches the good news of Jesus. The spirit falls in this powerful way. People start to speak in tongues, right? And we don't have time to get into all the tongue speaking and is this normal, is this not? But the basic point is the same thing is happening here that happened back in Acts chapter two with the apostles in Jerusalem. Now the same Pentecost type event is happening amongst these Gentiles here. Basically, this is the spirit saying, this is legit. This is not like a JV thing. Like this is varsity. I'm doing the same thing with them that I did with you back in Acts chapter Two. And, and we, we miss this, we run past this, but like how amazing, how incredible. I would have loved to have been there at verse 48. Like the spirit falls, they get baptized, and then they ask him to stay for a few days. I mean, think about like what was dinner conversation like with people? Like, what have y'all been up to for 1400 years? Like, I mean, like, what were they talking about? Like, why do you eat that food? Like, but it's amazing. Like, this is the vision of reconciliation. Like, he stays in their house, something a Jew. Like just days before, Peter had been like, no, never. Now he's living with them. He's a roommate with them for some period of time. That's, that's incredible. Like don't, don't run past how significant that is, how hard that would have been. And then, of course, Peter gets back to Jerusalem and his church, I mean, we don't really have this problem anymore. Church people are not critical like this, but he gets back. He has this amazing experience. He goes back to Jerusalem to headquarters And what's it say? The circumcision party criticized him. Like revival breaks out, all these Gentiles come to know Jesus, the spirit falls. I mean, like the spirit cuts in on Peter's sermon. They didn't even let him finish his sermon before he breaks out. There's this massive revival. And what's the first thing that they say? Like, oh, that's awesome. Praise God, people are getting saved. What do they say? 
you ate with who? Right, like they're criticizing them. And Peter's like, hey man, I don't know, like this has happened. Like I did, all I can do is just share my experience and my story. The Spirit's doing this. And so he unpacks what happened. And then he gets down to the end of the passage there. And I love this question. I love this statement that Peter makes in verse 17. If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can I possibly hinder the work of God? How can, who am I to stand in the way? Like in other words, Peter's acknowledging, I've been a hindrance. I've been standing in the way. So I, I wanna get out of the way and let God do what he's gonna do. Who are we to stand in the way of something that God has been doing, or at least wasn't new, like he said this to Abraham thousands of years ago, you're gonna be a blessing to the nations, right? To non-Jews. Through you, I'm gonna bless the world. He says to Isaiah, through Isaiah, you're gonna have a Messiah who's gonna come and be a light to the Gentiles. Jesus said it in Acts chapter one, you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, which was Jewish code for to the Gentiles, right? To the known Gentile world. And yet there's still wrestling to understand how God could possibly do the impossible. How does the impossible become possible with God? And, and this is a major hinge point in the book of Acts, right? Because this primarily Jewish movement now is going to become a multi-ethnic movement with full inclusion of the Gentiles. This is gonna take us from chapters 10 all the way to chapters 15. And in chapter 15, it's gonna end with a big brouhaha, like a big church council, where they're like, all right, how do we negotiate like this full inclusion? How do we how do we do this? How do we handle these cultural differences? I can't wait to get to that sermon. How do we handle these cultural differences in a way that honors and acknowledges the dignity of Gentiles while also acknowledging the stumbling blocks for the Jews in terms of all the cultural differences. What we want is unity, right? That's what we want. So how do we do that? What I want you to see in all of this, if we're just zooming out, like what is the big point here in chapters 10 and 11? What I want you to see more than anything else in this passage, if you don't walk away with anything else today, just hear this. What we see in Acts chapter 10 and 11 is God's burning desire for reconciliation. We see God's burning desire for reconciliation. Did you notice how many times in this passage, in these two chapters, Luke draws our attention to God's presence and God's initiative in reconciliation? This is not something that Peter was looking for. This is not something the disciples, even though they've been told, they were shocked, they were surprised, they were resistant, they were confused. I love that the Bible does not like sugarcoat it. It doesn't give us heroes who don't struggle with these issues. Like It, it presents people just like us who are like, huh? Like, oh, God's doing that? Like, really? Like, people that just are like us. Like, it's such a paradigm shift that the Holy Spirit has to give them visions, has to give them dreams, has to speak to them, has to direct them. Basically, the Spirit is like spanking them, like, kind of like pushing them out and saying, you're going to do that. That may have been too violent. But like, the Spirit is, is, is definitely like pushing, pushing them to join Jew and Gentile, the spirit is falling, the spirit is filling. Like the attention of this passage, and I've said this throughout the book of Acts, the attention and the focus of the book of Acts is not on how spectacularly uh, insightful or like, you know, like um, uh, culture forward the apostles and the disciples and the Christians are. It's actually, the focus is on God. This is something God's doing. 
And you have a choice to make, apostles and disciples. You can either get with God and move with the Spirit, or you can resist and you can miss out on what God's doing in the world. That's, that's basically their choices in the book of Acts. And so I want us to see God's burning desire. This is what God is doing. He's drawing together a multi-ethnic family, a reconciled multi-ethnic family centered on Jesus Christ. That's important. Centered on Jesus Christ that will display, Paul says in Ephesians 3, the riches of God's wisdom, his beauty, and his glory to the world. That's, that's what God's doing in reconciliation. This was at the heart of the gospel that, G, that Peter preaches in this passage. And yet notice there's a disconnect in this passage between the words of the messengers and their actions. The apostles and disciples had not, as, as we have not, fully integrated, fully internalized, and fully embodied the implications of the whole gospel. That is the problem here. So they needed to be disrupted by God himself, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, because the default operating system of their hearts, the default operating system of our hearts, of human society, of the world, is cultural homogeneity and cultural superiority, right? Like they're just doing what is the natural thing for humans to do. We don't drift towards the pursuit of reconciliation. It's not automatic. It's not magic. It's not something we drift towards. Matter of fact, we drift towards division. We drift towards fragmentation. If you look at the history of the world across all cultures and all times, we drift away from reconciliation. And so the gospel has to penetrate and overcome these ingrained and automatic and unconscious barriers that left them stuck. They were stuck. The Spirit had to come and shake them up. It's kind of like, I don't know if you ever get these, um, these little uh, spinny things on the, the, the rainbow spinny thing uh, here on your computer if you have a Mac. I think PC, I haven't had one in like 50 years, but it's like a, it's like a blue spinning thing. Um, like when, you're, when your computer's like reaching for a file that it can't find and it just spins, and then if it spins long enough, it turns into the like screen of death or whatever. Um, that happened to a pastor friend of mine on Sunday morning. It was like my worst nightmare. But like, it, like the, you're just, your computer's stuck, and it's like it's trying to access something that's not there. I feel like in so many ways, that's the situation they found themselves in. And I believe it's kind of a similar situation in our cultural moment in the American church when it comes to race, when it comes to ethnicity, when it comes to the work of reconciliation. We are spinning, spinning, trying to figure out what to do. It's like we're reaching for a folder. We're reaching for a file that's not there. And we're close to, it feels like we're close to this like screen of death. Corey Edwards, uh, who's a follower of Jesus and a sociologist up at Ohio State University, she wrote a great book a couple years ago. She's done a lot of research into multi-ethnic congregations. And here's what she has to say. She says, multi-racial congregations have, greater, have gained a greater share of American churches over the past 20 years. But as my colleagues and I have found, they are not delivering on what they promise. Multiracial churches often celebrate being diverse for diversity's sake. They aren't challenging racial attitudes that reinforce systemic inequality. James Hunter, another Christian sociologist at UVA, uh, recently conducted a big study nationally on race and religion. And he sums it up by saying there is a chasm, a racial divide in America. The biggest chasm, he said, exists between actually white Christians and black Christians, African-American Christians. 86% of African-Americans, when they were asked in the survey, do you see racism as a very serious threat? 86% said yes. 
while only 36% of white Christians said yes. Think about that, 50-point gap in how we're seeing the same reality. On almost every issue in the study, from poverty to police brutality to perceptions of American history to immigration, there were these massive gaps in perception between Christian, white Christians and Christians of color. And this is not just a challenge, right, in the country. This is a challenge in our own church, right? Like, this is a challenge for us. We are a church that is 93% white, according to our most recent demographic survey, in a neighborhood that is 80% white. Like, we have made progress, and I want to talk about that as we, as we get to the end, um, but we, we have a long way to go. There is a burden on people of color who come into our church and who are what Corey Edwards calls pioneers, ethnic pioneers. There is a burden of, of coming in and, and having to exist and try to flourish in uh, congregations like ours. We saw the tensions, right, of 2020, right? We had back-to-back-to-back incidents with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery in our own uh, city. We saw some of these racial flare-ups and, and there was so much tension around that, right? Like people were like freaking out that our church showed up at peaceful prayer protests downtown. We actually had people leave our church because we were praying in the city and singing in the city with our brothers and sisters across the spectrum in the city. Like that, that, that was like, people were just like, what are we doing? Like, why, we can't do that. And, and, and some people left. So there's lots of tension, right? We feel just the complexity and the lack of kind of emotional and spiritual maturity that it's gonna take to really deal with a lot of these things. And so what I wanna just give us is a hopeful reminder from this text that what it seems some days, if we're honest, like almost impossible. It feels exhausting. It's possible with God. Not only possible, but inevitable. It's inevitable. Read the end of the book, right? Like Revelation, it ends with us gathered around the throne with God, worshiping in our heart languages, bringing our cultures into the new heavens and the new earth without shame, without embarrassment, without recrimination, without resentment. This is our future. So what does it look like for us to live into that now, to live into this vision of a reconciled people in our time? Because we have some similarities to Acts chapters 10 and 11. We have also some things that are very different than what they experienced. And so what does it look like, just as, as we kind of apply this, what are God's invitations to us as a church in our cultural moment? Let me just, just say quickly that first thing that's really important in this and applying this is that um, we need to understand what reconciliation means, right? Oftentimes we talk past each other and we don't have biblical language. Reconciliation gets so watered down because our culture talks about it in terms of diversity and inclusion. And I'm not, I'm not against, I'm for diversity and inclusion by and large. There's lots of good that's being done there. But reconciliation is more than just diversity. Even in the church, it's more than a bunch of people coming together and singing songs together in like a worship environment, right? Like there's gotta be something different in what the Bible's calling us to in reconciliation than what's happening at a Beyonce concert, right? Than what's happening at an IU tailgating party, what's happening at jazz, like we can get together and be in the same room and be diverse and yet not be reconciled, right? Reconciliation is something so much deeper than that, so much richer than that in the Bible. We can be in the same room and hate each other. You can be in the same room and avoid each other, ignore each other, not be in each other's homes and each other's lives. Brenda Salter McNeil, one of the, uh, my favorites on this, she defines reconciliation, I like this, as the ongoing spiritual process involving forgiveness, repentance, and justice that restores broken relationships and systems to reflect God's original intention 
for all creation to flourish. That's reconciliation. When the Bible talks about reconciliation, that's what it's talking about. And so a question for us to ask as we think about God's invitations to us is I think I just want to take us back to the the question that Peter raised. How could I possibly hinder God? How might we possibly individually and congregationally and even larger societally as the church be standing in the way? And again, probably not intentionally, but for most of us, not consciously, but maybe more insidiously, unintentionally, and unconsciously be standing in the way of what God's doing. And how do we move? How do we continue moving from being a people who maybe stand in the way or can be a hindrance to being an ally in a cultural moment that's characterized by racial division, racial fragmentation, and racial injustice? Let me just, from this text, give you a couple of ideas. And just these should be reminders. If you've been around SOMA for a while, hopefully this will feel like review. If you're new to SOMA, I, I want to make sure we all, under, all understand what we're doing here um, because this comes from the Bible. This is not coming from a sociology textbook. It's coming from the Bible. And I want you just to hear it and see it here. So a couple things, a couple invitations I believe that God has for us in this text. The first thing, we have to connect reconciliation to our gospel calling. We have to connect reconciliation to our gospel calling. I have learned over the last decade or so of doing this work as a pastor, here's the number one thing I've learned. Our understanding of the gospel will determine the degree to which we engage in the work of racial reconciliation. To the degree that we understand what John Perkins a generation ago called the whole gospel, he says we've lost the whole gospel. Where you lose the whole gospel, you lose reconciliation. So he says the biggest thing is the church needs to recover the whole gospel. And why is it important that we get the gospel right? Because God, how we see the gospel is then going to define discipleship for us. Dallas Willard said that. We need to uh, think about this because what we present as the gospel will determine what we present as discipleship. So again, here's what I've learned in Indianapolis. For many people, when I say the gospel, we, our mission as a church, we see the gospel change everything. What a lot of people think we mean when we say the gospel changes everything is a gospel that is good news that Jesus Christ died for our individual sins to be forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die. Now, yes and amen, Jesus died for our sins to be forgiven, right? That's the Billy Graham gospel. That's basic 101. But if that's all that's happening in the gospel, right, then we're free to ignore racial division, racial injustice, and racial reconciliation, and maybe even call it a distraction to the gospel. I can't tell how many times I've had conversations with people when we talk about race and we talk about ethnicity, we talk about justice, who are asking me, come on, meet with me and say, why do we talk so much about race and culture? Why why, why don't we just preach the gospel? And when I'm not triggered and I'm in my redeemed self, after having this conversation for so many years, I've learned my response needs to be, define the gospel for me. What is your version of the gospel? And almost always it comes back to that individual, personal forgiveness of sins, go to heaven when I die. But notice the gospel that Peter preaches in this passage to Cornelius. Listen to Paul's gospel. Listen to Jesus' gospel. It's not less than that, but it's more, right? Peter says, he sent me this message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news, that's the word gospel, the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Peter's gospel of peace? Jesus is Lord of all. 
That's the gospel that Peter preached, the gospel Jesus preached and lived out, was that the kingdom of heaven, the reign and rule of God, has come down to earth in Jesus Christ, Israel's promised Messiah. In his life, in his death, in his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus has liberated us, Peter says, from the tyranny of the evil one, of Satan and sin. Jesus is Lord of all, all people, all nations, all things are reconciled through Jesus. And Jesus has come not just to give us life after death, but new life starting here and now on this earth. We are a foretaste of the new creation. We have peace with God, yes and amen. But we also have peace, Paul says in Ephesians 2 with one another, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. That was a literal wall in Herodian's temple where Jews and Gentiles were separated. Gentiles could not come into the Jewish part of the temple. And Jesus, Paul says, literally takes a sledgehammer to that wall, tears it down, and makes Jew and Gentile one people. That is the gospel of Jesus. Through the gospel, Jesus is forming a reconciled family that transcends racial and ethnic barriers. And by the power of the Spirit, as we are experiencing that kind of gospel sanity in here, we are then able to take that sanity out into the world and be a healing presence. So this is our definition of the gospel. And I'm just gonna keep hammering away at this because I, I, I am still getting this. I know we're all on a journey of getting this, but this is the gospel that they were preaching, the good news that God himself has come to rescue us from sin and to renew the world through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the gospel. We need to be able to... to, to, to to find our calling to reconciliation in that, to root it not in just sociology, not just in history, not in some history class we took at IU, to come back to the gospel and to see this is the very nature of what God has been doing from the beginning. And that's why when Peter later goes to Antioch, it's funny enough, again, Peter's just, he's a mess, like we all are. He goes to Antioch and he's eating, I would imagine, bacon sandwiches, bacon and egg sandwiches with uh, his new Gentile neighbor's and all the Jewish people show up, what's Peter do? He backs away and he says, oh, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't doing that, it wasn't me, that was, that was Paul. And, and Paul confronts him to his face and what does Paul say? Not, you've done something wrong here. Peter goes, you're not acting in step, you're not living in line with the gospel. So the main thing I want you to hear today is that, that, that that's the work that we need to do first and foremost. We have to anchor our call to reconciliation in the gospel. We have to see this as God's invitation to us. To be a gospel people is to be a reconciliation people. And, and if you're gonna be here at Soma, I say this because it will be frustrating. Like, it, it's hard. And if you don't see the call to reconciliation as a call, you have to think about this like a vocation. Like, you are a missionary, this is a like a job, a vocation. If you're not called to this and you don't see God inviting you into this, you will not like being at this church. You will think all kinds of bad things. You will call me all kinds of bad names, some of which I probably deserve, but like, not for those reasons. This is a vocation, and to enter into a vocation is to enter into the joys and the pains. To enter into a vocation is to enter into a crucible of formation and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is doing. 
And we have to be able to say, this comes from God. God has placed this in my heart as a burden if you're going to sustain it. If you're, if you're just starting on this journey or if you are frustrated and bitter and cynical, we got to go back to our calling and say, this is what God's doing in the world. This is the only thing that'll sustain us. Okay, uh, second thing, I'm gonna move quickly through these. Uh, first thing, connect it to, uh, I know everybody's looking at the clock like for real. Yeah, just let me just run these real quick. Second thing, we've gotta commit to learning. We gotta commit to learning. To be a disciple. Do you know what the word disciple means? Right, please tell me. Learner. To be a disciple is to be a learner. I've moved several times over uh, the course of my life. My wife and I have lived in, a couple different cities, 12 different houses, something like that. We lived in different cultures. Moving from Kentucky to South Florida, Miami, was a learning experience. It was a, like, I literally, like, just from a racial standpoint, I mean, from a cultural standpoint, it was so different. And I had to be open to different kinds of food. Like, I went to the ER, like, our first month in Florida because my Cuban friends uh, served me vodka frita. And I learned that I couldn't eat vodka frita because my intestinal tract. So, I mean, there's just learning that has to take place. My, fr- my friends are like, oh, we killed the white pastor. You know, like, literally, that's what they said. Like, no, I just have a gastro thing, I guess. Moved back to Indiana, and my wife and I are sitting in like Chick-fil-A, and we're like, oh my gosh, it's so white here. Like, what happened? We like, what happened to like my Puerto Rican and Colombian friend? Like, it's just so different. We have to be learners. To be a disciple is to be a learner. You see that in this text. Peter is learning, right? He, he, he's moving through this journey. He's open to what God wants to teach him. That's what it means to be a disciple. You can't be rigid. You can't be closed-minded. You can't think that you're an expert at this. None of us know what we're doing when it comes to the work of reconciliation. We're trusting the Spirit, and we're, we're open-hearted, open-handed. We have what social psychologists call a growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. We have to learn a couple of things. We have to learn about ourselves, right? Like, I want to invite you, if you've never done this work, to really Think about how you've been formed and shaped when it comes to issues of race and ethnicity. Your family of origin has shaped you to think about race and ethnicity in certain kinds of ways. Just like Peter was shaped by thousands of years of family traditions and narratives and assumptions about who he could trust, who was dangerous, who was good, who was bad. You have been formed. I have been formed to think about these issues. We are not acultural. We are cultured beings who exist in social context. We've been taught so I want to invite you to think about, you can take a picture of this next slide. Think about some of the ways that your family has taught you, your family of origin might have taught you to think about race. Who were you taught? What were you taught about different ethnic groups? And if you're white, just remember you have a race too. So you've been taught something about your race and your ethnicity, right? Um, who are the people you were taught to fear? Who are the people you were taught were beneath you? And again, nobody ever sat down and said, this is how it is. But like, who are the people you avoided? Who are the people that never came into your home? Who are the people you walked on the other side of the street when you were walking through the city? Like, that's the kind of stuff. It's more caught than taught. So we've got to become aware of those assumptions. We we also need to become aware of and to learn about our faith tradition. One of the things I've found in the Midwest is that our faith traditions are kind of limited. And we've not, especially when it comes to reconciliation, we've not been exposed to the larger tradition of reconciliation and justice. So many of us didn't grow, if you, if you grew up in an African-American church, I bet you grew up hearing about race on a regular basis. You grew up hearing about justice. I, I've been in these churches, like you, you heard about that. That was normal for you. If you grew up in, in a predominantly white church, you probably never heard a sermon on race or ethnicity. Very few. You, you're probably not as familiar with the Imago Dei, the dignity of Genesis chapter one. 
You may not be aware of a multifaceted view of sin that doesn't just see sin as the personal things that we do, but also recognizes that sin has social dimensions, it has institutional dimensions, read the prophets, it has cultural dimensions, and it has spiritual and demonic dimensions. And we need to, we need to think about all of that if we're gonna engage in the work of reconciliation in ways that are not reductionistic. So these are just some of the categories that we need. It's like we're missing these file folders and we've gotta put the file folders back and we've gotta learn why is it that justice is all over the Bible and yet I grew up in a tradition where I never heard about that, literally, until I was 25. Okay, so we gotta, we gotta learn. We gotta learn, we gotta learn to see our blind spots. And again, I know it's hard, I know it's difficult work, it's personal work. To do this work, this is strong inner work. This is deep inner work because it calls into question and complicates our personal identity, our family history, our aspirations for us and our grandkids. It calls into think generational things. There's all kinds of weird social pressure when you're doing this work. Like people are gonna call you unpatriotic, they're gonna call you a Marxist, they're gonna call you a woke, whatever. But like, again, this is just the Bible, right? Like Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my heart, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me, lead me in the way everlasting, cleanse me from my hidden faults. He assumes that there's things that he doesn't see about himself. And he just goes, God, would you bring those to my awareness so that I may deal with them? We gotta learn about ourselves. We gotta learn about other cultures. And I wanna encourage you, like embodied experience over culture war, right? Like Peter goes into the house, that's how you learn. We gotta surround ourselves with networks of people that are different than us, not just like, hey, I have a black friend or I have a white friend or I have a, a Puerto Rican friend, but like networks and institutions of people who think differently than we do who are gonna stretch us and help us see things. We've gotta learn new cross-cultural skills and practices and values and attitudes. We gotta learn things like cultural intelligence. We gotta listen. We've gotta empathize. Some of us who are cerebral and analytical gotta stop with all the obsession over, you know, like facts first, fact finding, what really happened, and just stop and learn to empathize. I see you're hurting. I mean, a couple months ago, I had a friend at a ball game. My son is the only white kid on an all-black team at his school, and we were at a game, a ball game, and a friend of mine was treated uh, in a way and eventually uh, asked to, to leave the game. It's kind of a, a racially charged environment, and um, after the game, out in his car, humiliated, some of the comments that have been made, just walked up to his car and said, hey man, I, I'm so sorry that happened. I, I, I see, I just want you to know I see you. I don't know what happened. I just want you to know I see you. And he said, well, would you please walk back in there and explain that to all of those people there who didn't see me, who didn't understand what happened. And it was a great opportunity for us to just empathize with each other and say, hey, I see the hurt, I see the pain. And he said, I'm so exhausted with this conversation, and I'm so tired of this happening. These are two Christian schools playing middle school basketball against each other. He said, it's so discouraging that this happens with Christians. I get it in the world, I get it in my workplace, but with the church, when is it gonna change? And just to be able to enter in there for a moment and listen to my brother, to show up for him, and then to speak out on his behalf, to learn to advocate, to learn to talk to our school, and then the conversations that came out of that and the beautiful redemption that came through that for the kids and their basketball team and the parents that were there. Again, I don't say that to say, like, I'm amazing. I miss it all the time. But I've had to learn those skills. I didn't grow up in a tradition that showed up at protests. Just didn't. So we gotta learn. We gotta, thirdly, uh, lament, repent, and resist the racial sins that continue to shape our world today. 
Racism has a long history. It's not the only story, but it is a pervasive and enduring story. It's integral to our history as a country, and it still shapes our present reality, right? Like if you had family members generations ago who were alcoholics who beat your parents, you wouldn't say, oh, that's no big deal. That just happened a couple generations. I mean, it's a, it's a trauma that we're still living under in some ways. And yes, things have changed, and there's been progress, but there's still so much pain and so much further to go. And so we have to be able to lament, to enter in, to lament with our brothers and sisters. We have to be able to repent, to confess, to do the work of restitution, repair, like all the things that the Bible calls us to when sin happens. We've got to work towards doing that together. We've got to resist participating in those things as we see them. And so we have all kinds of resources that will help you on that. Again, I don't have time to go into it. We've got a ton of resources, workshops, sermons, books, We've, done, we've hosted citywide conversations here. We do nights of lament, prayer and worship here as a church. We've got an entire section on our website devoted to racial reconciliation and justice that I just wanna point you towards uh, as you're seeking to grow and to learn. Fourthly, we normalize complexity and discomfort. It's just hard. I find that most Christians come to church for comfort, and that's not bad. But if comfort is your primary value, Corey Edwards in her research says the number one success factor in churches becoming multiracial is a willingness for majority culture folks to be uncomfortable, to lay down their power, their privileges, their preferences. So we've got to just embrace discomfort. Like you know you're in a multi-ethnic church when nobody gets their way and everybody's a little bit uncomfortable. And, and we just need to normalize that. The complexity, the difficulty, the discomfort, that's part of life. And then fifthly, we, we've got to celebrate progress. We celebrate progress. We have to remember that God has us on a journey. And I know that we show up sometimes in these spaces and we want more and we long for more and we're not where we hope to be. And yeah, like it can be discouraging. There's so much discouragement. You get online, there's so much discouragement, right? We need to be a people who, again, don't gloss over the hard things. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't try to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. We don't try to minimize but at the same time, we've got to be a people that celebrate the good progress that God is making. I mean, there's a lot of things we can celebrate at SOMA. We've grown in diversity in our leadership over the last couple of years in significant ways, right? To have Asian folks, to have African-Americans sitting on our board, uh, to have Latino, Hispanic brothers and sisters sitting on our boards, our elder team, our staff. Those are huge points of progress for us. And we need to celebrate that and say, thank you, God. We have a different perspectives than we would have had five, six, seven years years ago. We've grown in resilience. We've grown in empathy. We've grown in engagement, right? Like our work at the poorhouse, our work through uh, caring for refugee children, our work through circles and poverty trainings, our cross-cultural relationships. I mean, on our recent survey, the majority of our church have significant, meaningful cross-cultural relationships. That was not the case three or four or five or six years ago. And now that's happening. So we need to be able to say, thank you, God, and to celebrate the progress that's being made. So we're never gonna arrive and we're never gonna get there apart from a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's like, you know, we've inherited a house. Our first house that we bought on the north side had a whack foundation and we didn't find it out until the first snow. We found it out when our ceiling exploded. <laughs> and we had to do the work of repairing. But you know what? We didn't, we didn't tear the house down. We, 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 we made the repairs and our hope is to hand it off to be a little bit better for the next person. 
And, and I believe that's truly where God has us as a country, as a church. It's like, what does it look like for us to recognize? We didn't lay this foundation. We moved into this house and we started seeing doors sticking and all the stuff. What did it, but what would it look like for us to do the work of repair? And if maybe not for us to experience it, to hand off something to our children that they don't have to deal with, that we have to deal with. For them to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of God's goodness and his grace in a multi-ethnic church to not feel like when they turn 20, they have to leave the church because the church is hypocritical, but rather to say, this is a place where we actually experience this and we wanna be a part of this. Let me just pray for us and we're gonna go to communion and we'll send you guys out with one more song and benediction. I realize that conversations like these can be tense and emotional and they bring up all kinds of stuff. And I just, more than anything else, want you to listen to God. I don't want you to be distracted by me. So if I've said anything that offends you or said anything that maybe distracted you, I just want you to pause and just to listen to God. Listen to the Spirit. Where might God be leading you to repentance? Where might God be challenging you to grow and to change and develop and to be formed into the image of Jesus? This is what God is doing in the world. And we want to just simply join him. And so I want to pray over us that we would cling to Jesus. We would cling and listen to Jesus, listen to the Spirit right now. As we come to communion, that we would recommit ourselves to this work, God's work. Father, we just want to come humbly. We want to open up our hands. We want to receive what you have for us as a church. God, would you teach us? God, would you shape us? God, would, God I pray that you would, just, you would hold us in your arms. God, that you would just draw near to us. We are afraid. We are anxious. We are sad. We are angry because we, we don't experience this reality. And matter of fact, we experience the opposite of this oftentimes in our world. And so, God, we, we just need you to draw near to us. We need you to teach us what it looks like to walk in your way, the way of reconciliation, to be your people brought together, united by the blood of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, so God, would you just meet us now in the depths of our being and would you speak to us in ways that we can understand. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.